Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. Do keep your Bibles open on page 1198 for Titus chapter 1. If we've not met before, my name's James. I work on the staff team here. It's lovely to be with you again this morning. And should we pray as we come to God's word? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this firm foundation that we have in your word. And we pray this morning that you would help us to concentrate well, to listen even in the heat. And please would you help us to understand and live out the truths of your word, that we might be spiritually healthy and flourish in this world as we look forward to heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back in May, Time magazine released its list of the 100 most influential people in the world. It's kind of split into various categories, if you've seen it before, um, sort of government, military, global organizations, media, kind of all these different sections of who are the, the most um, influential people around the world. And I, I was drawn to look at the, uh, the section on leaders. There's about 23 leaders who've been picked as it was within this most, uh, 100 most influential people in the world. And I was slightly humbled to realize just how few of them I'd ever heard of. Um, but the one who stood out most, who's been given the most airtime recently in, in the news, is President Zelensky of Ukraine. And, and as you read the kind of two paragraphs just describing how or why he's made the list, you can barely contain the, the number of descriptions of how wonderful he is. He, he's brave, resilient, relentlessly determined, profound sense of duty, inspiring, purposeful, brings unity, and no doubt very impressive leader. But, but there's this really uncomfortable tension as you read through the, the, the list of the 23 best leaders in the world most influential. 
is that on the same list that President Zelensky is on, Vladimir Putin is also on, 23 most influential leaders in the world. Because the uncomfortable truth is that leaders have great influence, both to influence for good and to influence for bad. President Zelensky and Vladimir Putin, same list. Because we know that leaders are highly influential, but that influence can be used for good or for bad. Healthy leadership at the moment, like President Zelensky's, gets praised. But unhealthy leadership, whether it's sort of just the, the comical incompetence of a David Brent-like figure from the office, or the evil dominance of a Putin, it's a disaster. We recognize that leaders are highly influential people in setting the whole direction and culture that a, a nation, a company, an organization, or a church follows. Which brings us to Titus chapter 1 this morning. We're back here again. And the main idea this morning is that it is vital for the health of a church community that you pick the right leaders. It is vital for the health of a church community that you pick the right leaders. Because leaders are going to influence the direction and culture that the church follows for good or for ill. Now, it's the, the second week that we're in this book of Titus. You, you might remember if you were here last week that the main theme of the letter is spiritual health. That's the word that comes up again and again, health or being sound. It's the word that gets translated here. And Paul's been involved in planting some churches on this island of Crete. He's had to leave and he's left Titus behind. And in chapter 1, verse 5, which we just had read, we can see there's things that are unfinished in the churches. And Paul's left Titus there to kind of bring these churches to spiritual health. And so chapter one, we're seeing today spiritual health in the church community. Then chapter two, spiritual health within family life and the workplace. And then chapter three, spiritual health in wider society. And we saw last week again that the key principle at play in the letter in chapter one, verse one, is that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. That is, if we want to be growing in spiritual health or or godliness, which we said last week is kind of all of our life committed to God in practice, If we want to grow in godliness, it is vital that we're consuming a healthy diet of God's truth revealed to us in the scriptures so that we don't just believe, know the truth, but believe it as well. There's an unbreakable link between what goes in and what comes out. So as we come to chapter 1, verse 5 to 16 this morning, we're going to see this key principle that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, bringing spiritual health into the church community. Um, There should be an outline on your sheet. It's very simple. We're going to break it down like this. So verses five to nine, appoint godly elders who cling to the truth so that verses 10 to 16, ungodly false teachers can't disrupt the church. So that's how we're going to work through it this morning. So firstly then, verses five to nine, appoint godly elders who cling to the truth. So let's have a look down at verse five. Paul writes, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, elder, that's one of the the three main words used to describe the group of men who are in charge of, responsible for, leading a church. So verse 5, you see the word elder. Verse 7, if you look down, there's, there's the word overseer. And then elsewhere in the New Testament, there's the word pastor. Elder, overseer, pastor. Three words, they're used interchangeably. And they're the group of people in charge of leading the church. And Titus is to go back to these little church plants on the island of Crete and make sure there are elders in charge. Now, verse 6 to 9, then, we see you don't just appoint anybody to the role. 
So he lays out this sort of, I guess, job description of what the role of elder is to be. Who are you going to pick? It's the, the bit if you're applying for a job on the job description, you know, the successful applicant will be dot, 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 dot. That, that's what it is in verses 6 to 9. And he lists these sort of 15 different things. And I mean, what do you do when you have a list of, of 15? We're not going to work through all of them in detail this morning. We're just going to pick out some kind of the big picture. It is clearly not exhaustive because there are other lists in, in the New Testament. And it's very compressed. There's lots more detail you could have added. But just as we look down at verses 6 to 9, first you just notice what's not on the list. Notice what's not on the list. There is nothing to do with personality on the list. There's no words like charismatic or entrepreneurial or visionary, the sorts of things that you often find on job descriptions today. That, that's not on the list. You also don't find skills. I mean, most of them aren't skills that you kind of get taught. Perhaps verse 9 is, but, but most of them is actually all character. It's all godliness. It's all about character and godliness. And that makes sense, because if the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, the people you want to be in charge are the model of godliness to the whole congregation, that the truth of the gospel is producing in their own lives. So the whole, the whole list is about character. So we're going to work through it and look at some of the different aspects of the character of these people who you want to be in charge of the church. So let's have a look then at verse 6 into verse 7, and we'll see that the elders are to be blameless at home. Blameless at home. So it says, verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. So you see blameless kind of bookends it there at the start of verse 6 and middle of verse 7. It doesn't mean perfect, it just means above reproach. There's, there's nothing obvious that you can point out that, oh yeah, that's, that's really wrong with their life. Blameless means above reproach. There's a consistency with what they say they believe and how they live doesn't mean perfect, otherwise everyone would be disqualified except Jesus, but blameless. And he looks at their home life first in verses 6 and 7. So you see the reasoning in verse 7 for why he looks at their home life. It says, since an overseer, the elder, is going to be managing God's household, you turn and look at their home life. Because that's what the church is, right? It's God's household. It's God's household. The church is God's household or family, because in the gospel, God doesn't just forgive us our sins, but welcomes us into a new family. Spiritually speaking, Christians have been adopted. We, we relate to God now as our father and Jesus is our older brother and, and all those in church together, we are brothers and sisters. We are a family together. And so the church is God's household. And so if you want to look at who should be in charge of managing God's household, well, a good starting point is to look at how they manage their own household at home. So again, the emphasis on, on godliness at home, they're to be blameless. And it, he picks out particularly in their marriage and their children, if they're married, and have children. So literally there in, in verse um, 6, a one-woman man, that's someone who, if married, lives faithfully with their wife, modelling a sort of marriage that Jesus calls us to. And then their children, it says children are, are believers or trustworthy, if you look down at the footnote, there's some debate about which one is better. But I think the second half of the verse helps clarify. It says, children not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now again, it doesn't mean children are perfect, because none of them are. It means children are, I guess, have been disciplined well and taught the gospel at home. That is, the elders are teaching the gospel at their, in their homes and they're disciplining their children, which is precisely the things that Paul's going to call the, the elders to do in the church family in verse 9. 
teach the gospel and discipline. So elders are to be blameless at home. Then we move on to to verse 7, the second half of verse 7. He kind of waves a big red flag and says, if you see any of these things, do not let them anywhere near the church leadership. So you see verse 7b, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, you would have thought that these things are just a given. Of course, you don't want these people in charge. But as you watch a number of high-profile scandals involving church leaders in the last year or two, it just highlights how much these things need to be said and said again. These people will cause great damage to the church if they're leaders. Their victims will get painfully wounded and injure the reputation of the church. That The way that these people behave in the second half of verse 7, their lack of godliness shows that there are big blind spots in their understanding of the truth of the gospel because it hasn't transformed them. I've tried to put it in in three, five uh, Mr. A's. So Mr. Arrogant or overbearing, that's how the the word's usually translated, Mr. Arrogant. It's all about him and what he wants at church. Don't ever try and tell him he's got something wrong or suggest a different way of doing things. Mr. Arrogant is the first one. You get Mr. Angry. It's the second one you see there, quick-tempered, Mr. Angry. Everyone is always walking on eggshells around him because well, he could just explode at any moment. Then there's Mr. Addict, not given to drunkenness. The person spends their life under the control of different substances. You can never trust them to make a godly decision. Then Mr. Aggressive, that's not violent. The word doesn't necessarily mean they're going around beating up members of the congregation. It's more just that they're a bully. They're a bully, They'll throw their weight around to make sure they get what they want, Mr. Aggressive. And the final one, this is the most tenuous one, Mr. Acquisitive, or Mr. Avaricious, if you like that word, greedy. Greedy. They are in it for themselves. They are pursuing dishonest gain. They just want to make money. So Mr. Arrogant, Mr. Angry, Mr. Addict, Mr. Aggressive, Mr. Acquisitive. Five people, five big red flags. Don't let these people anywhere near church leadership. Their ungodliness shows them not to be not to be understanding the truth of the gospel. Now, as you sort of read the reports over a few years into various church leaders who've had to fallen from their ministry, they're never enjoyable to read. And your heart always goes out to those who've been badly hurt. And inevitably, a picture emerges. Often, they, they really have the character of one of these five Mr. A's. And people often knew that. And you think, how, how could they ever be let in charge of a church? And the same reasons always come back. But they were so gifted. Look at how much God's been using them for good. But but they're they're so well connected. They were trained by so-and-so or friends with so-and-so. And and, they're just a bit quirky, aren't they? The same things come come back again and again. But Paul says, no, it's just ungodliness. These five red flags, don't let them anywhere near church leadership because their character is just out of line with the godliness that the truth of the gospel ought to produce. So you get those five red flags then in the second half of verse seven. And in contrast to that then in verse eight, you see that the leaders are to embody godliness. So verse eight, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, because also these things will come up next week in chapter two as we look at the whole church, we won't go through this list in detail. But, but just notice it's kind of the opposite to the red flags we've just seen. These people are outward looking. They care for others. They're self-controlled. Their lives are holy. They're disciplined. 
These people embody the truth of the gospel in the lives as they live them. So rather than the red flags that are waving, these people embody godliness. So that's, that's sort of the, the list of character traits, the, the godliness that the, the um, elders are to have. But then in verse 9, we get something else, which is slightly different. It's not so much a character trait as a, a way that they live. So verse 9, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So as well as having a godly character, the elders are to cling to the truth. They must hold firmly to God's word. Now there's a sort of, there's a strength to that word, isn't there? It's holding fast, it's kind of clinging on. Um, One person who knows a thing or two about holding firmly is the free climber Alex Honnold. I don't know if you know much about him. He's, a, he's a quite an extraordinary man, really. He's an American rock climber whose trademark is to climb without ropes. So he, he climbs up really tall things without ropes. And in two, 2017, he became the first person ever to free climb up El Capitan, which is a 3,000-foot vertical rock face in the Yosemite National Park. And there's a film about it called Free Solo. It took him almost four hours, and someone described it as one of the great athletic feats of any kind ever. Four hours without ropes, 3,000 feet up, vertical. Now, I don't really enjoy heights. I don't really enjoy climbing, and I would always do it with ropes. But even the little bit of climbing that I've done, you always hold on really firmly because you don't want to fall off. Now, magnify that to 3,000 feet up a vertical cliff face, you're going to be holding on firmly because you know if you just slip, you let go, you fall off and it'll be certain death. Your life depends on holding fast to the rock. And Paul in verse 9 wants elders to be those who cling on tightly, holding fast to God's word. The elders not to let go because they know that their spiritual life and the life of the whole congregation depends on it. Holding fast to God's word. And of course, that, that has a connotation that there's, there's, there's ways in which people are trying to make you let go. It's going to be a struggle. It's not easy to do so. Uh, at the moment, I have a, the privilege of studying at a Bible college in North London. And I know many Christians around the world would love to have that opportunity. And one thing I always try and remember is I, I sit in lectures and it's always comfortable. There's a lovely professor. Everyone there is so nice. And you sit there being taught this amazing truth day after day after day. But I always have to remember in my head, there's a big difference between knowing it and clinging onto it. Knowing it and clinging onto it. It's easy to know the truth as you sit in a comfortable lecture theatre, but out on the ground, as it were, you have to hold on, cling onto it. And you see in verse 9 what that's going to look like in terms of how the the elders are going to be living. So the second half of verse 9 says, So that he can encourage others by sound, healthy doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The context is that the elders need to be pumping out God's truth into the congregation to encourage everyone and also on the lookout for those who are going to be opposing it and to refute them. Elders must cling on tightly to God's truth. So as we've looked through that that job description, you see character, godliness and clinging on to the truth. They are the two key things. Now, before we move on and see the context in Crete that's really calling for that, it's worth making a, a couple of observations, reminders to us. The first is this, that we need to remember that the church is God's household. The church is God's household. People can start businesses, political parties, sports teams, schools, all manner of different organizations, and they all need leaders. 
And church leaders, of course, have lots to learn from other leaders. But the church is God's household. He created it by the saving power of his gospel. He has forgiven men and women, calling us into his family. And so God gets to decide the best way in which that family is going to flourish and grow, to be marked by godliness. And so in God's household, fundamentally, the key thing is that leaders are godly and cling on to that truth that leads to godliness. It is possible for a church to appoint people to be leaders just because they excel as leaders in other spheres of life. They may be very impressive, but that in and of itself tells you nothing about whether they're qualified or not to lead in the church. I was struck this week reading a a quote from a a book about leadership. The the man who was writing the book told the story of how an Australian businessman once went over to, um, to Japan and got talking to a CEO of a Japanese firm. And the the Australian businessman was a Christian, and he decided to to share his faith with this Japanese CEO. But but the CEO was just dismissive, not interested in hearing about Jesus. And the man asked, why? Are you happy to tell me why you're not? And the the Japanese CEO said this. He said, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man in touch with another world. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager at home, only in this world, just like I am. And that kind of captures the the idea of what Paul is saying in Titus. Paul doesn't want church leaders to to just be like managers, like any other manager, living for this world. He wants Christian leaders to be holy, godly, in the biblical sense of the word, living lives for the eternal life that God has offered in the gospel. Godliness and clinging on to the truth of the gospel are key. So remember, firstly, the church is God's household. Secondly, remember that elders are not spiritual superheroes. Remember that elders are not spiritual superheroes. I mean, one of the striking things about this list is they're not extraordinary things that only kind of a small elite class of special Christians could ever hope to attain to. Everything in this list, perhaps maybe not verse nine, but everything else in the list is what all Christians in the church family should be growing towards. They are exactly what godliness looks like in practice for all of us. I remember eight or nine years ago when I was an intern here at church and we're part of a a wider church network um, in London and all of the interns from all of the churches would kind of gather together and have some training together. And one day I remember there was a a big announcement at our intern training because um, a a big name Christian speaker from the States was coming over to do some teaching. I can't remember, it was probably John Piper or, or Tim Keller or someone like that if you know them. And they were coming over to speak, and there was instantly there's this buzz that went around the room. How, how exciting they're coming. It's, it's going to be amazing. We'd read their books, listened to their sermons. There was almost a sense of just, wow, they're, they're coming. It's going to be extraordinary. And it lasted for about two seconds, because someone in the room, loudly at the back, shouted out, I don't know why everyone's so excited. He's just another bloke with a Bible. That's what he said, just another bloke with a Bible. And he wasn't meaning that disrespectfully to, to Keller or Piper or whoever it was. He was just trying to make the point. We're we're all getting so excited about this wonderful person coming over and he's just another person qualified, like Titus says, godly and got their Bible open, cling firmly to it. He's not a spiritual superhero. Don't need to put him up on a massive pedestal. They're ordinary Christian believers who have grown in godliness and who cling to the truth. The elders are not spiritual superheroes. It's very dangerous to put them up on a big pedestal. So there's the first half then, verses 5 to 9. Appoint godly elders who cling to the truth. So then in verse 10 to 16, we find out the reason. 
So verses 10 to 16, we see, so that ungodly false teachers can't disrupt the church. So that ungodly false teachers can't disrupt the church. So in these verses, we find out why it's important for Titus to go around the churches in Crete and appoint godly elders. Now, looking through the, the whole of the, those six or seven verses, there's lots of things going on. We're going to try and just break it down into three simple questions. So you can see that there are, verse 10, many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. That is, that there's false teachers who are going around trying to disrupt the church. Now, I can ask the question, what are they teaching in the church? Now, we don't know the exact details, but from the little bits you can pick up in these verses, it has all of the hallmarks of, of a Jesus plus religion, a Jesus plus religion. You see, the trustworthy message of the gospel, it teaches us that men and women should rely solely and exclusively and entirely upon Jesus Christ for our salvation. So back in chapter one, verse four, Jesus is described as our savior. He is the one who's done everything we need to be rescued Verse 2 of chapter 1, those trusting in Jesus then have a certain and unbreakable hope of eternal life through him alone. Chapter 1, verse 3, we see the gospel has been made known to the world through God's word. And so as we listen to that word and believe it about Jesus, we can come to faith in him and can grow in godliness. So Jesus has earned our salvation. He's revealed our salvation in the Bible and he's guaranteed our salvation, eternal life. Jesus has done everything so that we might rely solely and exclusively and entirely upon him. And this last week, a friend of mine, um, he jumped out of a plane. Um, On his own, relying on himself, it would have been an absolute disaster, as you can imagine. He would have gone crashing straight down to the ground. Except for the fact that my friend, he was doing a tandem skydive. And so as he, he jumped out, he was strapped entirely to someone else. And that someone else had the power to save him from certain death. There was nothing he needed to do. All he had to do was just rely that his friend, who he was strapped to, would take him down safely to the ground. In the same way, Jesus has done everything that we need, so that all we need to do is to rely solely, exclusively, entirely upon him for our salvation. But the false teachers, in verses 10 to 16, they are teaching a Jesus plus message, teaching the church to not just rely on Jesus, but to add other things on that they need to rely on. So if you look down at verse 10, they're called those of the circumcision group. Guess Jesus plus rituals. You know, Jesus is okay, but you need to add on some some circumcision and some other special religious things that you need to do. Then in verse 13, we're told there's Jewish myths as well. So this is Jesus plus revelation. So you need to not just listen to your Bible, but also staple a few extra bits into it as well. There's some stories that are kind of circulating, some myths that they were adding in. They're saying Jesus plus revelation. There's no special prophecy, secret words of knowledge, revelation only a few people have access to. Staple those into your Bible as well. And then verse 13, it talks about merely human commands. Jesus plus rules. You know, don't eat this food. Don't go over there. That, that meat's unclean. Live a, a celibate life. That's the only way to, to be truly a Christian. Those sorts of things. Man-made rules. Jesus plus ritual or revelation or rules. So Jesus plus religion. And these false teachers are going around the churches saying, you don't just need to rely on Jesus, rely on other things as well. And there is something attractive, right, about relying on something else because we get to take a little bit of the credit for it because we're the ones who've managed to do the ritual. We're the ones who've got access to the revelation. We're the ones who've managed to follow the rules. 
But in actual fact, it's a disaster. As foolish as it would have been for my friend jumping out of the plane to unstrap himself and think, I've got a better way to do this, to get down. And we see the impact of the teaching in these verses on the false teachers and on the whole congregation. Because we've seen, haven't we, that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. And these false teachers, therefore, they're letting go of this truth about Jesus being the sole, exclusive, entire person we need to rely on. And so when you let go of that truth, it shouldn't be a surprise that the churches in Crete become more and more and more ungodly, because this false teaching has no power to change them. So you see, verse 11, some of the the ways in which the, the church is becoming more and more ungodly. So verse 11, it says that they are disrupting whole households. Unlike the the well-ordered households of the the elders who Titus is going to choose, these false teachers are disrupting the households. But even more strikingly, we find that this so-called Jesus plus gospel has no power to change the church from the world around. You get this in verse 12, not very flattering description of what Crete was like. So you see it, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Not how anyone wants their city described, I don't think. In fact, if you go back into to ancient Greece, there's actually a, a verb, that, um, a Greek verb called kretizo, which means to be like a Cretan, which was used of people who are liars. They are like a Cretan. That's what you say in the ancient world. And that's what the, 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 um, the island was like. It wasn't very moral. It was pretty ungodly. And Paul is saying then in... Um, the middle of verse 12 into verse 13, that this church, these false teachers are becoming just like the culture around them. Paul says it's true. That is what Crete is like. And this is what the Cretans are like. Verse 16, the churches are becoming, the false teachers are becoming unfit for doing anything good. Because unlike the true gospel, this false gospel of Jesus plus religion doesn't have God's power to change the people to grow in godliness. So they become just like the culture around them in Crete. Now, I think uh, up on the screen, hopefully we're going to have a, a picture um, of a tree. Now, now, this tree is right in the middle of the Saharan desert. And it was amazing because it was the only living thing for about 150 kilometers around. One tree in the middle of the desert was flourishing. Everything else was dead and dry and arid. They think that the tree stood here for about 300 years, something like that. Um, and as they were trying to work out, how, how is this tree flourishing? They, they dug down deeply into a well and, and they kept going down, down, down. They found that the tree's roots went down about 35, 40 meters under the ground until it hit the water table and it was sucking up the water. And so this tree, amongst everything else, was able to survive. It was attached to the life-giving water that allowed it to live while everything around it was dead. Now, it would be almost a perfect illustration had a truck driver not crashed into it in the 70s and knocked it down. I don't know how you do that in the middle of a desert. But anyway, so there's now sort of some shrine, I think, to the tree there instead. But, But there's one tree in the middle of a desert that was there for 300 years, sucking up the life-giving water and flourishing. And Paul's saying, look, Crete is like, it's a moral desert. It is a spiritual wasteland. And the false teachers with their false gospel, there's no power to to bring life. It's just the church will be dry and dead like everything else around it. But if it's attached to the life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus, then the church can flourish. It can grow in godliness. That's why you need elders who are able to teach the truth, to keep that gospel flowing into the church so that it can be 
different from the dead, dry spiritual culture around them. And the same is true in 21st century London today. You can look around and go, oh, you know, it's so materialistic. There's out of control sexual desires. There's just indifference to the weak and the vulnerable. The city we're living in is a spiritual wasteland. But I guess in one sense, we're not the first culture where that would be true. Crete was not a particularly nice place to live in terms of its morals. And yet Paul is saying, as long as we stay attached to the life-giving message of Jesus in the gospel, we can flourish and grow and be godly even in the midst of a, of a desert around us. But if we let go of that message, if, if the church leaders let go of that message, don't be surprised if the church just starts becoming like the culture around it. Our church will become as dry and lifeless as London is, spiritually speaking, just like it was happening in Crete, if we let go of the gospel. So then, what do the elders need to do? Well, verse 11 says that these false teachers must be silenced. They aren't allowed to stand up and teach in the church to let their Jesus plus gospel go round. Now, it might sound harsh, but but the false teachers' motives are not good. So you see verse um, 10, that they are deceiving the congregation. Verse 12, they're motivated by money. Verse 10, they're rebellious. Verse 16, they're disobedient. Indeed, their way of life in verse 16 shows that they deny God himself. Their corruption goes right down to their minds and their consciences so that everything they're doing is tainted by this impurity. They may look nice on the outside as people, but underneath the motives are really bad. Now, the elders are then to be silencing the false teachers. We can see verse 13, the hope is actually remedial. So he says, rebuke them sharply so that they'll be sound or healthy in the faith. That is there to be like a doctor with a sharp scalpel cutting into the patient to to remove the cancerous tumour and restore them to health. The elders, through their words of rebuke, are going to remove the the cancerous false teaching with the hope of bringing these false teachers and indeed the whole church back to health. The godly elders who cling to the truth are to be silencing these ungodly false teachers who are disrupting the church. That's why it's so vital that they cling to the truth themselves and that they are godly themselves. So then as we come to to a close, final thing to to say then is don't be naive about false teaching in the church. False teaching, this gospel plus, Jesus plus religion that teaches us to not solely and exclusively and entirely rely upon Jesus Christ for our salvation, but wants to add in some extra bits, some rituals, some extra revelations, some special rules. It wasn't just a problem in Crete, but continues to be a problem for the church throughout history to this present day. It would be really nice if the false teachers, when they walk on, there's sort of some sinister Darth Vader music playing in the background so that we could spot who they are like that. That's not how it works. It's usually subtle. And so just because someone speaks confidently about Christianity, whether it's someone knocking on your door, handing you a leaflet, or someone just wandering around church afterwards, or whether it's someone with a religious title, a vicar, a pastor, a priest, whoever... What matters is, does this message teach me to, li- to rely solely, exclusively, entirely upon Jesus Christ for my salvation as revealed in the Bible? Because the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Does this teaching then lead to transformed, countercultural, godly living, or does it lead to the church just becoming like the culture around us? Don't be naive, there is false teaching in the church, and so we have to keep on clinging to the truth. We need godly elders who will cling to the truth. And we know they're clinging to the truth because they live out the godliness that the truth brings. 
So give thanks and pray for elders here at church who are clinging tightly to the true gospel message, who are encouraging us to live godly lives, who are helping us to flourish spiritually in London today. Give thanks for them and pray for them that they might continue to do so. And pray that not just for our church, but for the wider church in the UK. Pray for elders who cling to the truth so that we as a church in our nation today might be godly. Let's pray for that now. Father, thank you so much that your gospel contains the life-giving power to change us so that we might flourish even in the midst of a spiritual desert. Please would you help us as a church to believe that gospel, to keep on relying on Jesus Christ for our salvation. Please would you help our elders and those who lead us to keep clinging tightly to the truth. And please would that be true, not just in our church, but in churches in our country and around the world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.